I'm Alex Green, and this is Stereo Embers, the podcast. Check this out. Big balloons, soaring high, all floating down the lane. What to do? I lost you. That is the music of Louise Gothen. Louise Gothen is my guest today on the show. Let me tell you a little bit about her. Louise Gothen is the daughter of the legendary Carol King and the also legendary songwriter and producer Jerry Gothen. Louise was born in Brooklyn. and She got her start in the music business at age 14. She sang on the song Nightingale which is from the Carole King uh, album Wraparound Joy from 1974. She also sang background vocals on the Really Rosy album in 1975, and she also sang on her mom's Simple Things record in 1977. When she was 17, she got her uh, start opening for Jackson Brown at the Troubadour. What were you doing at 17? What was I doing at 17? I was uh, making mixtapes for girls and eating cupcakes and trying to get my hair to look like Simon Le Bon's. I was only good at the cupcakes, it turns out. Uh, Louise's first album was 1979's Kid Blue. She also is the youngest artist to appear on the Fast Times at Ridgemont High soundtrack. Um, She's actually, in addition to being a solo artist, she is also a legendary side player. And she's appeared places you may not even know it was her, but it was. For example, she played banjo with Brian Ferry. She toured with Tears for Fears as their guitar player. She's awesome. She does a lot of things. She's also the founder of Rocket Carousel Studios in L.A. So she's a songwriter. She's a solo artist. She's a side player. What else is she? Well, Louise Goffin is also a producer. She produced her mom's 2011 holiday album called A Holiday Carol, and that was nominated for a Grammy. Not too shabby. Louise Goffin. Her last solo album was 2015's Apple on Fire, but she's been putting out songs ever since then, one by one. Go to her website, louisegoffin.com, and uh, you'll see what she's doing. She's putting music out a lot. She's very prolific. Her newest uh, single is called New Year's Day, and it features the legendary Billy Valentine. Now, let me tell you a little bit about this conversation because it's really interesting. I don't know where these things are going to go. I sit down with these artists. I have no questions written. I have nothing planned. I have no agenda. I have no uh, subversive thing I'm trying to dig out of them. I'm not trying to get the gossip. I don't want any tabloid stuff going on. I'm not trying to uh, you know, create controversy or whatever. I have no agenda. I'm just trying to have a conversation. I don't know where that conversation is going to go. 
And, uh, and that's kind of the exciting thing. Am I working without a net? Sure, but I like working that way. It's fun. I have no idea which threads I'm going to pull in that conversation, and I have no clue where we're going to end up. And aside from hello, I don't even really know where these things start. All I know is we start talking, and uh, things happen. And we end up places that uh, I could never have imagined. With Louise, I knew I didn't want to talk about her mom. That stuff's out there. I didn't want to talk about her dad. That stuff's out there. There's like a Broadway production of it. You can find all that information. That story's been told. And I just didn't want to go over territory that had already been gone over. So what did I want to do? I didn't really know. And we started chatting, and it really quickly became a conversation about the art of songwriting. And it, it actually felt like Louise was the distinguished visiting professor in an MFA program, and it was a craft talk about songwriting. And it was so cool. I loved this conversation. I mean, it's pretty focused. It stays, uh, stays on topic. We go, we go around here and there. Uh, you know, we, we jump around a bit. But for the most part, we're both trying to work out some of the magic elements and some of the basic elements, nuts and bolts kind of stuff, of songwriting. And we go pretty deep. So if you're interested in how people uh, who write songs for a living write those songs, uh, Louise talks a lot about that. If you're an aspiring singer-songwriter, musician of some kind, uh, I think this conversation will be very interesting to you. And even if you're not, if you're an artist of some kind, if you're somebody who likes to create things, I think you'll find this to be a conversation about process. And I think, uh, I think you're going to like it. All right. Okay, enough. I'm just talking, aren't I? Let's get to the conversation with Louise Goffin. Otherwise, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going on and on. So let's get to it. This is me and Louise Goffin breaking it down. Enjoy it right here on Stereo Embers, the podcast. It's interesting. I was talking about this today. I was in the studio and um, I was working with someone who works with a lot of young writers. And he said that, you know, the song we wrote, it was so pleasurable. It didn't feel like work. And I said, oh, because I don't like to work <laughs> anymore. Um, but a couple of things I was saying. One is, my son, for example, he started to do, you know, programming, and I'm I'm telling him, I said, hey, write the song first, and then go and do the programming on it. It'll be so much more fun, and it'll come out so much better. But the thing is, what I did for years is I'd write a song, and I'd really flesh it out, and then I'd write the lyric, try to write the lyric later, and it would be really intimidating, because you'd have all this ear candy and sounds and structure already in place. And the more it would form without the lyric and melody, the harder it would be to fit something into it. And then you get preconceived ideas of how it's supposed to sound when it's finished, you know, and you get more blocked. And I just got to this point about four years ago where I just started writing with, you know, a spiral notebook and a pen and crafting things out and a guitar and, uh, you know, uh, an iPhone memo. And I would just finish the song at the time, like the lyrics and the melody, really old school, which is something I never really did before. And it would just go quicker. You know, you'd write the song in half a day and then you go and record it and it's like butter <laughs> because you have a song, you know, it's more fun to think of parts when you already have a melody and a chorus and everything's there. So that's really what's changed for me. 
So what was happening, say, when you were 21? How were you approaching the craft? Do you think you were overthinking it? Is that what it might have been? Um, no, I mean, I've been doing this so long that it's different stages. I, I, I mean, what I was just describing about doing tracks first, I think, was something that started more in my late 20s and 30s, where it was just I had a, you know, multi-track and I was really getting into playing all the parts and playing bass and playing keyboards and, or, you know, and then it was, it was almost like the production was more of a appeal because I, Oh, now I know how to make this sound really good. But before that I was still doing things on the piano. Like there's a song I wrote with my dad when I was 21. That's really sophisticated. And it was just, him sitting in a chair with a notebook and me sitting at the piano. Um, and I played a lot of guitar when I was starting out, a lot of piano and a lot of guitar. I mean, both I would write different types of songs on. But I think in the beginning I was doing it more the simpler way before I got enamored with recording. And is that, is that why now you in many ways are more prolific than you've ever been? I guess I'm more prolific. It's, it, it might be that songs just were rejected and sat around so long that I just had this kind of big harvest of songs to do all at once. I mean, it doesn't feel like I write that often. But then when I think about it, I go, oh, yeah, I wrote that song that day with that person and that song with that person. And they... They get written in a day and they sit around and then it's, oh, yeah, I have to record that because I didn't, you know, I made a demo, but I didn't finish it and I should turn that into something. So they can't say kind of accumulate. I'm more into editing myself where I don't really finish songs I don't like anymore. Like I just don't even spend the time. It used to be like with a book. You start a book and you think, ah, I'm going to finish it to the end. You know, now, now it's. If you don't like it, you just don't read it. Right. You throw it across the room. <laughs> or throw it across the room. If, right. If anyone even reads books anymore. I actually made myself read this morning. I thought, instead of getting up this morning and going on my phone, you know, I'm going to actually get a book off the shelf and make myself sit and, like, read a chapter of a book. <laughs> it was really relaxing. I thought, oh, life could be so much richer if you read, read some good fiction. Well, by the way, what are you reading? I'm curious. Well, the book I picked up is a book I got years ago. A songwriter friend of mine was reading it, and it's uh, called The 40 Rules of Love. Um, it's kind of a spiritual book, and it's kind of, it's, it's a novel of Rumi. So I think it's kind of a fictional book if Rumi was the main character in the book. I like what you said, because a lot of our listeners are writers, artists, painters, um, musicians. And I, I know what you mean about, well, this one isn't working. I'm going to abandon this. But when I was younger, I used to try to muscle through poems or short stories that I was writing, even though I think in my heart of hearts, I knew it was, was going to be a thankless task. Um, but as we get older and as we accumulate the you know, the fabled 10,000 hours, we become more discerning, right? So in other words, because you muscled through stuff that maybe you shouldn't have, 
you now recognize, oh, this is this one's not going to work. Is that true? Do you get better at sort of figuring that out? Uh, I, I explained it the other day really well. I'm trying to put my finger on what's different. What's different is I used to be invested in the final product. I used to be I used to go from the creative moment and have my brain like fast forward to this expectation of what it had to sound like. And that was fueled by kind of ego or insecurity. You know, it's like, it's got to be really good. (laughs) You know, the chorus has really got to be amazing or um, it should be a song like this, you know, all those kind of ideas would be in my head. And now I don't do any of that. Now it's all like, oh, what's it about? What's the feeling? I, I, it's all about the humanity in a song. And, you know, to me, that's like the fast track to having something really good. Like, forget every, forget that. What does it look like on the big screen? What, you know, what does it look like? Is, is this going to be a hit record? Is, can so-and-so cover this, you know? I always say when you want your art to do something for your life, it goes on strike. It goes, yeah, well, just make me. <laughs> you know, and it just sits there and does not deliver. Like, you know, your song or your movie or whatever you're painting or whatever it is you're doing, it's not there to make your life better. <laughs> it's not there to fill the incomplete holes in your emotional, you know, landscape. That happens to be a byproduct of what we do. But as soon as we demand that from our work, it just doesn't deliver. It walks away. It goes, you know what? You're not you're no fun. I'm not playing with you. Bye. <laughs> Leaving. <laughs> you want too much for me. Yeah, it's just it's like it's like the muse is a kid, you know? When you start making demands on little kids, they're just like, hey, what's wrong with this grown-up? They're so boring in there. Uh, they, you know, they're just like, ew, <laughs> I don't want to play with you. You're too serious. So, I mean, I think keeping things fun is really, it's like the lubricant, you know? So is it the process of creation, that's the enriching quality, not the individual creations themselves, right? It's it's the process. I not... totally agree with that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Not the product. Totally the process. It's the act of creating that is the thing. The act of creating, you know, the byproduct of that is, huh, I've got a great song, a great painting. This turned out really well. But the, you know, the fuel and the energy and the emotion is, is in that process, the, cre- the act of creating itself. I heard uh, the comedian Jay Moore was talking about how he was saying, look, I can write a joke. I just can't teach someone to write a joke. Do you think that songwriting is as vaporous as that? In other words, is it something that can't be taught or is it something that can or somewhere in between? I totally think it can be taught. I mean, if you can tell a story, which anyone can do, you know, if something happened to you on the way to a friend's house, you would have an objective to communicate that story. You'd say, 
you won't believe what just happened to me on the way over here. This happened. And then that happened. And then, you know, and I felt this and I was scared. And it turned out it was really just, you know, whatever the story is, all you want to do is tell the story. And you're not thinking about the quality of your words. You're just, you have, your intention is to get, you know, let that person know what just happened to you. So I feel like anyone can do that. Anyone has that, you know, they have that part of them where they can communicate. And so if you have that, really it's like you can teach someone the shape of the song and you just, you know, it's guidance as to how to pour your story into the shape. You know, songs have certain shapes and get to know the shape. You know, get it's like cooking. Get to know how much salt is too much salt. <laughs> and right. don't put that much in. You know, um, and certain things like, you know, don't heat up the oil past a certain temperature. Or, you know, you just learn certain rules that once you get familiar enough with them, it's like riding a bike or driving a car. You don't think, I'm stepping on this brake. I'm stepping on the gas. I'm now signaling right. You know, you don't. We do all that while we're we're thinking about where we're going, and I think songwriting is much the same. If you're thinking about where you're going or the story you want to tell, and you learn the mechanics ahead of time, then the mechanics don't become something that's in your way anymore. They just they just work for you. The the fuel is the story you want to tell or the emotion that you're feeling. What do you think makes a song endure? Um, because I was, I was just explaining to my father at dinner, I was telling him about fairy tale of New York by the Pogues and Christy McCall. And I was saying, that's a stone yeah, cold, great. right? It's a classic. It's a stone cold classic. And, um, and he was saying, well, is it as good as, and he was naming some Ella Fitzgerald songs. And I said, I would put it up there with anything. Um, what do you think makes a song endure? Or is, is that the magical part that we can't apprehend? Well, this is another topic. You know, sometimes a record is better than the song of the record. And sometimes a song is great and it surpasses many different readings or records of it sometimes you have a great record and a great song so i think any one of those things or both of those things could make something endure um i mean for me what makes things endure is simplicity so it's really not about what i want to say and how i want to say it it's that i'm giving by offering a song, it should be like a, something else someone else could wear, you know? So that sentence came out weird. It should be, it's not just for me to wear this coat, you know? If I give it to you, you should be able to wear it too. So so basically, this is, it's kind of like, it's kind of like a romance. Like I once said to a girlfriend, I said, well, if you really want somebody in your life, why, you have to leave an empty drawer in your bedroom, <laughs> you know, because that will invite somebody. You have to leave an empty drawer for somebody to put their clothes. And she was like, wow, that's really interesting. You know, because if you don't have any empty spaces, where's, where's somebody going to go? It's like that with music. You, 
you keep it simple and then someone else has a place to put themselves in it, you know? And if you don't have that room in it, it's just going to be your little private thing, you know? You know, I remember in college I played my favorite song of all time was Salisbury Hill by Peter Gabriel. And I played it for this girl I had a crush on. And she said, oh, I don't like that song. And I thought I could never love her. Because for me, (laughs) (laughs) it's such an important song. But for her, it didn't hit her. But that wasn't her fault. It's so subjective that what endures for one doesn't endure for somebody else, which I guess there's that vapor we're talking about. It's a really interesting thing that, I mean, I know exactly how you feel about that song in particular, but I have also had that experience where you just, it's not part of someone's DNA, you know, it's just not part of their history and it it doesn't, it doesn't push those same buttons, you know, and it's hard to imagine how it couldn't, but really, you know, if, people didn't hear it at a certain point in their life, it it can just strike them quite differently. Yeah. Sometimes you're ready for it. Sometimes you're not. And it's, you know, and sometimes you never are. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to get a sense of what it would be like. For example, I thought, Oh, if I try my hand at writing a TV show, you know, there's all these TV shows out and I thought, well, you know, I'm a storyteller. They're just stories, you know. Why don't you know? Why don't I have the confidence that I could do that? Well, because I've never done it before. I mean, I've written a, a lot of songs, but if you think of it as a human story unfolding, that's what we want. We watch movies and TV shows and listen to music and read books and you know observe uh, any kind of art around us with the desire to feel and to identify with being human. So it should be transferable from one medium to another medium. And again, it gets back to not thinking about the product, not making the, the writing be about, hey, I need you to do this for me. I need this to be so good, Muse, so that, you know, I want to I wanna sell this script or I want to sell this song or I want this song to be the biggest hit ever. And any of that stuff is just a head-scratcher to the Muse. It's like, huh? Right. It doesn't mean anything. Right, because the Muse doesn't know anything about commercialism. The, the Muse, right? The Muse doesn't care about the charts or what's going to endure. The, the Muse is such a private, personal thing that it doesn't know anything about the external world at all. Not in the least. It, and it's also, uh, what, yeah, again, it goes back to that innocence of. Uh, play and curiosity. I, I think that's a really healthy thing, writing, and, and I think it's a good thing that I do when I'm blocked is say, what would happen if, you know, what would happen if we took out that line or what would happen if we went straight to the bridge and called that the chorus? You know, just moving things around and having that curiosity about things can open up a lot of connections and surprises, like really 
great surprises, serendipity, all of that. Where for you is there struggle? Like, in other words, where where are your spots that you still feel that you um, struggle with? Or, or for you, where is the tension in when you create? Well, uh, <clears throat> it's not really in creation. It's For me, it's just as an artist, the constant switching of hats is a struggle for me. It's not having repetition and repetition, you know, while in some ways is boring to the, to an artist, an artist always wants to change things up and, you know, have new adventures and artists often think the last song they wrote was the greatest song they wrote. And then, you know, they'll go to perform and they don't want to do any of their old songs because, you know, they're into the, the new <laughs> but I'm I'm realizing and recently came to realize that this recreating myself all the time is it's just stressful. I would really like to get to a point where I have a set and I play the same set and play the same songs and I know it and I could switch it up a little here and a little there, but by knowing something really well, you actually have a bigger range as to what you can do with it. When you're changing the terrain and the rules all the time, it's just every show feels like another happy accident. You know, oh, what's going to happen when I get to this song I haven't played for a year? You know, or what's going to happen to this song I usually play on the piano and I decided to suddenly play on the ukulele. But things like that I do to myself all the time. So, you say, what do I struggle with? That's what I struggle with is simplifying and, you know, allowing myself to be prepared. But everything was uniform. Don't you think that if it was, if it was so predictable that you might get, you might get bored? Is that possible? Well, I don't know if I do it enough to get bored, but for example, when you go on tour and I haven't toured much. I mean, it, let's say, okay, in the 90s, I went on tour with Tears for Fears, and it was four months. It was a month of rehearsals and then three months, you know, like three straight months. And, yeah, I really wanted it to be different, like the order of songs to be different. And even Roland Orzabal would, like, throw in a cover and do a couple things to keep it interesting for him. But, you know, there is that thing on tour where you feel like if it's the same every day and you're not writing and you're out, you know, just repeating a show, you feel robbed of your life because life is about being in the moment and being alive in the moment. And when you're doing the same thing you did the night before, the night before, the night before, you feel like you're not creating. So that, that would be frustrating. And I wouldn't want to, be doing something so often that it would get to that stage. But on another level, if you think of theater, for example, you know, even plays or musicals that have gone on for decades and been redone, let's say West Side Story or, or whatever it is, you know, those lines stay the same, but there's so much room and breadth for expression because you do it differently. You know, you change things up, but you don't interpret it in the same way. 
So I think I think it's really about finding a balance. I mean, you know, the, the thing about playing solo is that you could always change it up. And there's a lot of freedom in being prepared. Exactly. <laughs> you know, because living dangerously and going, oh, uh, I don't know how this is going to turn out, and I don't really know all the chords to the middle eight in that song because I haven't played it in a while. And, I mean, all that stuff. It happens to me a lot because I I do a lot of one-off gigs, you know. I'm not on tour, so a gig will come up and I get songs ready for that gig. And then weeks and weeks and weeks will go by and then another gig will come up. And maybe in that gig, I have two other players. So the arrangement is different. And then I'm playing solo again and then I'm working it out solo again. There's just a lot of that. So, I mean, that's my... You say, what's your challenge? I said, that's, that's my challenge is not being uh, one of those. I feel like a Dr. Seuss sometimes where like you're pouring the tea and riding a unicycle. And, <laughs> you know, you're doing the cat in the hat doing like five things at once. I saw one of those Tears for Fears gigs with you, by the way. Uh, it was a great show. What did you learn from that experience with those guys? The biggest thing I learned is to always wear, always wear earplugs <laughs> because um, I've had tinnitus ever since that tour. Is that right? It, it, it was so loud. Yeah, the, the sound, the side fills were so loud and I was on one side of the stage. So I was closest to the side fills on my side of the stage and, uh, it was pretty. I think it was when we were in South America and we were playing big places. It was just so so loud, and uh, we don't. You know, I think we've learned by now, but we don't get told when we're young that basically you have a bank account of hearing, and the more levels you expose yourself to. You know, you're you're using up the currency of your bank account of hearing. So you know. It, it pays to keep volumes not crazy loud and protect your ears. But none of us did that when we were young. You know, when we were in our 20s, we like going to clubs and hearing things really loud. And it feels more impactful when you're making your own music and you turn, turn the speakers up. It's like, yeah, you know, we don't know. So um, anyway, that, that was one thing I learned. But I, I really learned that it's great to be part of the band and it's it's great to be interacting with an audience because they're part of the, the music. It's 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 not a one way conversation. You're not just putting something out. It's it changes every night according to how the audience is interacting with the music. And uh and Roland is I've seen him live several times. He's an amazing singer. He is an amazing singer. He is he is blessed with, you know, the, the set of lungs that like opera singers have. He just has this resonant sound that's just big and really great, great set of pipes, you know, really great. You were talking about the idea of syllabic economy. Can you just talk, uh, I was really fascinated by what you were saying. Can you just expand a little bit on what that idea is? Did I actually say syllabic economy? <laughs> think, well, someone said you said it. Maybe, maybe you didn't say it. 
but it was certainly it was. Oh, the, someone said I said it. Someone said you said it. Oh, I, not I, in this conversation. Not in this yeah. conversation. But you were talking about syllabic economy in songwriting, and I I love that idea. Um, can you talk a, a little bit about what you meant? Uh, yeah, I mean, first of all, I think lyrics are a little bit like drumming and horn parts and lyrics, sometimes you want the syllables to move faster in the way that, you know, a hi-hat might make a fill going into a chorus. And I mean, it's, it's way too analytical to think of it in those terms. It's only something that I notice after the fact. But a really good way to learn it is just listen to Bob Dylan. Because Bob Dylan, even though his songs aren't musically that sophisticated, they're very, you know, easy to learn chord changes. They're not, like, he doesn't use a lot of jazz chords in his songwriting. But his lyrics are very percussive. His phrasing... uh, he uses phrasing as part of the emotional build. It's it's just, if you listen to Bob Dylan's lyrics, even if you read his lyrics and you say them out loud to yourself, everything that I'm saying is really well, uh, it's well demonstrated in Bob Dylan lyrics. Another good one is Joni Mitchell. She's, She's less percussive, but she's really, I mean, she's, she can be really percussive, but she's less into the blues than Bob Dylan in her writing. And, and she does use more jazz phrasing. However, lyrically, the lines, every line is, is a story unto itself. Like in just the first line, there will be an entire, she can set place and emotion and relationship all in a first line of the song. And the wonderful thing about that is, is once you get that in a song at the beginning, the song sometimes will almost write itself. It's really about pitching, you know, or anchoring the song well from the get-go. And then things will play themselves out with less effort. I mean, one of the things that I would tell people is when you're writing songs, you have to remember you're writing words to be sung. You're not writing a poem. You're writing songs that, you're writing lyrics that are going to come out of somebody's mouth, (laughs) right? So you want to taste the words, basically. They need to taste good. And if there's too much, you know, bunched up syllables and phrases that you're trying to fit in, it doesn't allow a singer to actually ride on a note. You know, some some writers who, you know, are writing for superstars like, you know, back in the day, Whitney Houston or Celine Dion or, you know, Mariah Carey, those writers sometimes work to put the note in quotes, the note in the song. So it's going to do this. And then we got to go up to that note because we're, we're, you know, we've got this singer and this singer needs to show off. 
So we have to have that moment in the song where the key changes and everything goes, da, 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 da. you know, that big moment. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> excuse me. Yeah, I couldn't even hold that note for 30, <laughs> 30 seconds in a whisper. Um, 30 seconds is a long time, but I meant like point thirty seconds. But what we have to think about as writers is even if we're singing the song, each syllable seems unimportant if you're looking at it on the page. But if it's coming out of your mouth, each syllable is a lot. Make each part of it matter. And don't put in extra words, because like, extra words are like things that you can get bunched up on in the middle of singing a phrase. You want the, I mean, in a way, it's 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 like French. You know, English is an odd language in that there's a lot of not-so-pretty sounds that can come out of the English language. We're the romantic languages, and, and I know some French, so... In French, you run words together. The end of one word runs into the next word, which is why I can read French better than I can hear it. When people are talking to me, I don't know where the end of that word came and the beginning of the next phrase came because of the way the language is spoken. But that is exactly how songs are sung, with the ends of words running into the beginnings of other words. And so... You want syllabic economy so that you have room to understand the words that the singer is singing. Um, Once upon a time, just so fine, you gave a bum a <laughs> You gave a bum a dime in his pride, or didn't you? Mm. Think about the rhythm in that. And then especially at the end with the did it you that like the did it did it that's like drums that that's accenting and and it's really it's really artful because we're looking at the meaning and we're going wow the meaning is so amazing but what what's the undercurrent to the meaning is there's so much emotion in the way that person speaks. Now, Bob Dylan is speaking in this way that's very, like, beat generation, you know, that, that street beat talk. But that also is inclusive of an attitude, you know, and an attitude can be in a drum part or a vocal part. I mean, if you're a folk singer, hitting a guitar, you know, strumming the guitar becomes the percussion, becomes the beat. I just think beats can be part of a song you know just built into the actual melody and lyric i think somebody you've worked with who does that really beautifully is rufus wainwright i think he's a great example of that yeah he's he's amazing at that and he's a crooner i mean he's just his way of singing is he just loves riding on the notes and he does it so beautifully and his lyrics are, are really visual and emotional. A, a song that is a really good example of um, syllabic economy is Cold, Cold Heart, Hank Williams. If you think of it, there's no extra syllables 
at all in that song. Like, I tried so hard, my dear, to show that you're my every dream. Yet you're afraid each thing I do is just some evil scheme. I mean, every line is telling a story, and there is not one syllable that is extra. And it's a, it's a real, it, it sounds like somebody's just talking to you, but well, how does he talk to you, you know, with not making any word wasted? But it sounds conversational, and it's easy to sing, and it's easy to remember. And in terms of when you are writing your own stuff, and you're keeping that in mind, that seems like a whole new extra challenge. Um, but I, I really love how you've explained that. Is that is it difficult to execute? I mean, is it, does it make the writing process um, more? Do you feel more responsible for the lyrics than than ever, or do you feel that it's just it's more natural? Well, it would be a good exercise. I mean, for me, a lot of songs will be assignments I give myself. For example, after this conversation, I could say to myself. Louise, you have an assignment. You need to write a song as simple as Cold Cold Heart. It's got to be like three chords and have a really simple melody and no extra anything and tell a story. And I might say, hmm, I'm going to see if I can do that. A lot of songs get written just out of, hmm, I wonder if I could do that. Let me try. Let me see. But in terms of how it affects my own writing, I don't really do that much editing while I mean things edit themselves naturally but I just write everything down and then as I'm singing they edit themselves it'll just be oh I don't need that extra word or something about this line doesn't ring true I don't really believe it I think there's probably a more believable line to go in this place what other line will end in a rhyme like this. And then I'll brainstorm and try a lot of things and see see what sticks. I mean, sometimes it's just a matter of scotch tape and a scissors, <laughs> you know, a pair of scissors. I, heard, I, I think I read once or saw a documentary, Woody Allen said that he still used a typewriter and, and a pair of scissors and scotch tape for his scripts in the first draft. He would just cut things out <laughs> and tape them together. <laughs> and it, it, it's a beautiful thing. I mean, that's really all songs are. It's just ideas cut and pasted and taped and moved around until they work. Why do you think it is that that artists, the, the most recent thing they've done is their favorite? Like, why is that the one they want to talk about more than anything else? Uh, because once it's cooked, like you don't want to eat your own recipe, <laughs> you know, it's like you write a song and it's this unstable element. You don't really know what it is. And I feel like every song is the, an answer to a question you're asking yourself in life. You know, you write the song and it, through the writing of the song, you discover what you actually feel about something that you didn't quite know you felt until you finished the song. You go, oh, wow. Now I know how that situation went. And, uh, you know, I've explored every part of this situation and here's what I've come up with. And the song is 
a representation of that. I mean, often songs I will find have wisdom that I've totally forgotten. <laughs> I'll go, I, wow, I wrote that song and it's got really good advice. Why don't I listen to the advice of this song I wrote then? Because it's <laughs> really good advice. But, you know, you forget and you move on. But once once things are cooked, they they lose their appeal a little bit, you know? It's it's for someone else to enjoy. And then the, the one you just finished is a, is a new adventure and a new discovery and a new you. And it feels more compelling. Do you, do you think that we are wiser in our art than we are in our lives? In other words, I do think, do you think that like we can be smarter in the stuff that we create rather than the life that we're actually living? I totally feel that. I do too. Why is that? Uh, because it's the, the subconscious, the unconscious, I don't know, I'm not a Freudian, um, the part of ourselves that writes songs is plugged into a deeper well of wisdom. And, I mean, I often say the best thing you can do when you write is to find a way to get out of your way. You know, because the person who is writing the song is a lot smarter than the person who drove here and has to pay the bill. And, you know, the things that we do throughout the day, it's just, you know, we're just ordinary. But there's a intelligence and a wisdom and a power and a fertility that lives in us. And if we don't overanalyze it and allow it, to speak, uh, you know, we get to better places than we would if we're too caught up in analyzing and controlling and having to understand everything that's going on. I remember hearing that you were kind of frustrated by how long it can take for music to be, you know, for music to come out. Um, So is this why you've decided to sort of release your songs the way you're doing it now? Yeah, I actually really enjoyed this process because I, I always like creating and I like the whole part of it. it. It's the song, it's the recording of the song, it's the artwork, it's making the video, it's, you know, all, all of it. it. And it used to be that way too. I mean, in the 60s when singles were coming out, it was much more about a, a branding, artwork, a, you know, the whole thing, the way the bands looked, uh, the touring. And I, li- I like being in motion. The whole thing about working within the guidelines of the way it used to be with A&R and a record company and, and all of that, what you would do, and people still do it this way, is you'd write a lot of songs and you'd have other people saying, nah, the record should have these songs on it. These are the best ones. And then you'd cut those and then everyone would say, I don't know if we have any singles, you know, you should go write with this person, that person, that person. And then, you know, let's try to get our first single. Well, we have the first single, but we need the second single. And you would do all this strategizing before. And then, 
when the record was finally approved and finished, then you'd have to get on a release schedule with whatever the other product was coming out. And you would just have your 15 minutes. You know, your 15 minutes was really three to six weeks, maybe. Oh, God. And three to six weeks with radio and see how it does with radio. And, you know, usually the funding was pretty good and it, upon initial release. And if radio didn't pick up on things, if you didn't get in, you know, go from light rotation to medium rotation and start showing some momentum, you know, the, the meetings at the record company would say, all right, well, what else have we got? You know, do we want to take this money and continue to promote this thing that we, we took a chance on, went to radio, and then radio dropped it? Or do we want to put this money to this other record that we have coming out? And then it would be over. And you'd think, gosh, it took me three years to get this record together. The writing, the choosing of the songs, the recording of the songs, the waiting for the release date, the you know, all of that. And it's three years of your life. And then it's like, well, you know, we did our best, sorry. And all those songs are gone, you know, out there. So... That whole, that whole model for me was just too disempowering. It, it just felt like I was putting my life and my destiny and my creativity and everything just into, you know, the hands of people. Not that they didn't care because they did care in the moment that they cared. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can say that about anything. Sure. They, they really cared in the moment that they cared. I totally believe that. And I thank them, and I'm very grateful for the moment that they cared or the moments that they cared. But, you know, they're running a business, and it's a revolving door business. And artists, you know, producers get to stand on one side of the revolving door and a new artist comes in and they work with that artist and then that artist goes out and that product goes out in the world. And the new artist comes in the revolving door and the producer is always standing at the doorway where the revolving door is feeding new talent and new possibilities to that producer. And same with record companies. But if you're the artist, you know, you get to go through that door only so many times in your career. And every time you go, you want to have, you know, you want to have your wares vary together and you want to come fully armed with your best material and that takes time. And, you know, the risk is so much higher and the payment personally, emotionally, is so much higher for the artist than the record company or the A&R man or the producer. So I just didn't want to do that anymore. It just seems so in, unequal, you know, to do that. Well, they still have a job, but I'm going to wait another three years to get the next one out. So this is way better. It's just put a song out, have fun with it, and then put another song out and have fun with it. You control the flow. Yeah, I control the flow. I mean, I had to have a lot of material mixed and ready ahead of time, or else it's kind of like washing dishes where, you know, the person who's drying the dishes is 
done and they're waiting for you to hand them another dish. <laughs> Where's the next dish? These are all put away already. You're not washing fast enough. <laughs> what What are your? Uh, <laughs> I, that makes total sense to me. Um, what are your What are your plans? Like, what are your goals for the next couple of years? Do you Do you think like that, or do you Or do you sort of just take it every day as it comes? I'm just having fun. I mean, what What are my goals for the next two years? Just to keep having fun and not run out of money. You know, I mean, the thing is, (laughs) the thing is that doing it this way, I mean, basically, as a record company, you know, if, if I had an artist who put out a couple of singles with videos by single three, or maybe single four, I'd say, you know what, we don't really have money for videos anymore. You know, no more videos. And it would be like, oh, you know, but I keep, you know, you put out a a single and you say, oh, go to Spotify. You know, that's a a post on social media. And then it's really not enough for people to, you know, go listen to a song. They don't. I mean, typically people don't go listen to a song. They're more likely to watch a little bit of a video with the song in it. And so it makes sense to not just put out a piece of music, but to put out a piece of music and then some other medium with that song and maybe behind the scenes or, you know, more stories surrounding that song. So every song gets maybe exposed to your audience three times and uh, they either listen or get it or... You know, then you move on to the next one. That that's where I'm at. Do you do you try to write every day? God no. <laughs> no <laughs> Why not, not even close. <laughs> oh my God. How many there would be too many songs. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I mean right now I think you go through stages where, you know, sometimes you go through a songwriting stage and sometimes you go through a recording stage. Sometimes you go through a it's time to just promotion stage, going on tour stage. And, you know, right now, I don't feel like I need more songs. I have so many songs recorded that are ready to be put out uh, that sound great that I'm really excited to put out. I mean, I always say that writing another song can be almost burdensome, like, Oh, I got to feed and clothe and send to college another song. <laughs> it needs a record. It needs a cover. It needs, you know, it needs to see the light of day. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but I do write down ideas. Sometimes somebody will say something or I'll, you know, I'll hear something in conversation or I'll read something or I'll just be driving and I get an idea and I go, that's a title. And hopefully more often than not, I have the presence of mind to write it down or put it in my phone notes or send myself a memo. And and I have gone back to these things. Like sometimes I'll go back to these things I write down two years later and write it. Yeah, you... You said something a while ago where you said uh, you're trying to hold that note and you said the phrase 30 seconds in a whisper. 
And I thought, that's a great song title. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. There you go. Um, do you buy into that yeah. that idea that Tom Waits said where he said that just because your line isn't in the water doesn't mean you're not thinking about fishing? I agree with that. Yeah. It's always, it's always there, I agree right? with that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that there is a part of my brain that is always always receptive to, oh, there's a song idea. Yeah, and, and I was talking about this the other day. There's, there's a lot of pre-sifting that goes on the longer you do it. You know, it used to be I'd write down everything, and then I'd go through it and go, eh, is that a song title? Is that a song title? Is that a good line? Should I keep that line? All of that. And, and now more things are sifted. There's more discernment before I write things down or before I think that's a song. And it's it's subconscious. It's not conscious. It's just, it's like a cook after enough years in the kitchen doesn't use a measuring cup anymore. They know you only need this much salt. There's, there's my salt metaphor again from earlier in the conversation. <laughs> you know, from, from salt to washing dishes, there's a lot of cooking analogies, a lot of kitchen stuff. It's true. I'm actually, I'm, I'm like right next to my kitchen right now. Maybe that has something to do with it. <laughs> um, do you find yourself also getting inspired by other people? Like, in other words, when you hear something new and you go, wow, that, that knocked me out. Did, has that happened to you lately? It always happens to me. I mean, I think that healthy, I think healthy competition, not I want to, you know, do better than you or, you know, it's not either or or better than, less than competition. But when I hear excellence from someone in terms of any part of music, record making, songwriting, arrangement, sounds, engineering, any of it, I just love that. I, I love feeling inspired and wanting to be better and, and having it almost be like a dare. Like, okay, see if you could do something like that. You know, see if you could do something that good. It's really terrible to like ever feel like the best at anything. It's just, there's, you know, you can't be inspired. So, I mean, I think it's really important to be listening and getting inspired by other people's work. Well, there you go. That was Louise Gotham. Wasn't she lovely? Wasn't she fun? I liked her. I thought she was cool. That was like a craft talk on songwriting. If you are uh, an aspiring songwriter, you probably learned something just now. And uh, if you're not an aspiring songwriter, you probably still learned something. I'm not an aspiring songwriter. I learned a ton. Uh, My thanks to Louise Goffin for her time. And my thanks to you guys for coming back each week and listening to Stereo Embers the podcast. Future episodes coming up. Mark Bryan of Hootie and the Blowfish, Anara George, Allison Moyer, Cloud Castle Lake. What more do you want? 
Kanye West? Well, I'm working on it. Uh, All right. Listen, as always, thank you for listening, and I will see you next week on Stereo Embers, the podcast.